I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Previously on Bloodlines. William Woodward Sr. has spent his whole life breeding horses to get to Nashua. And then Billy just walks in, you know gets all the glory. I mean, I think, again, what, what you're seeing is people telling stories through their horses about themselves. And then there's Billy Woodward um, on the carpet, naked, not moving. The most prestigious bloodlines were available on the market as opposed to just being contained and retained by the top echelon of sportsmen. It was his people doing it the old way, and he wanted me to witness it. So at the top, and then he had me see the end. This is American Pharaoh. He was born in Kentucky in 2012, and his pedigree includes all the usual suspects. Northern Dancer, Raisin Native, Mr. Prospector. Each of them directly descended from the Vanderbilt's most famous horse, Native Dancer. Pharaoh was trained by the great Bob Baffert. You might remember the vanity plate on Bob's Bentley that reads, Pharaoh or Bob's wife, Jill, crying as she described his triple crown winning race. We have some hard hitting questions for you, American Pharaoh. Do you remember winning the triple crown? What did it feel like when you crossed the finish line? Justified does not like it that American Pharaoh is getting the carrots. Justify is Baffert's second triple crown winner. He and Pharaoh were the only two living horses to win all three of those races. Now they spend their days across from each other in a barn that looks a lot more like Tony Montana's villa than a home for horses. Hey, did you hear about the horse who walked into a bar? The bartender said, why the long face? <laughs> this is what happens to successful racehorses. The very moment they're done taking photographs in their final winter circle, they're shipped off to breeding farms like this place, Coolmore, outside Lexington, Kentucky. This is where Pharaoh and Justify have been put out to stud, which just means they'll spend the rest of their natural-born days breeding incredibly expensive new racehorses. According to Blood Horse magazine, Pharaoh earns $175,000 per breeding session. They breed him to about 175 mares a year, which adds up to almost $31 million. The farm paid $23.5 million for his breeding rights in 2015, so the investors have made nearly $100 million off of him to date. That's what this business is now, ROI. Last episode, we talked about the sale of Nashua back in 1955 and how it changed the whole economy around horse racing. 
That was the moment thoroughbreds went from being the expensive hobby of American aristocrats to financial investments owned by syndicates. For this, our final episode, we came to Kentucky to see the decades-long fallout of that sale and to understand how the dead horses at Santa Anita and the crisis throughout the sport might be connected to the way horses are now bred. Here in the cradle of horse racing's past, the same state that gave us straight bourbon whiskey and Wendell Berry, we went looking for the future of horse racing. I'm Wright Thompson. This is Bloodlines. Episode 3, The House is Condemned. That horse right there, she was born at 10.55 last night. That is a six-hour-old horse. Yeah, exactly. That's Walker Hancock. He's driving us around Claiborne Farms, a a breeding operation down the road from Coolmore, where we were just visiting American Pharaoh. See how they run? (laughs) Still trying to figure it out. Look at them just running around in circles. It's it's not, you know, uncommon to see them racing each other out in the fields either. I mean, like, you know, they'll just chase each other around and stuff like that. That's kind of cool to see. Walker is a baby-faced 30-year-old. His great-grandfather, Arthur Hancock, started this farm more than a century ago. Arthur's the one who made the relationship with the Woodwards, and they bred all their horses here. Arthur's son, Bull, was a legend. Queen Elizabeth flew to Kentucky to ask for advice. That's who the Hancocks are in the horse world. Now all of this is Walker's responsibility. He's tasked with protecting the family business on land that has always been his home. Walker, this place goes on forever. <laughs> 3,000 acres, it's uh, just about all of it's used. I mean, a lot of people have, you know, 3,000 acres and probably, you know, maybe 1,000 acres are forest or unusable land, but this is pretty much all usable land here. Do you know every square foot of it? No, oh, yeah. Yeah, I either have mowed it or um, I've done something with it. Uh, whether I've driven out in the fields and checked on the horses and I grew up here, so... We rode all over the farm. There are thousands of acres of black painted barns with bright yellow trim, miles of black tar fence, rows of sycamore trees lining the narrow roads. We passed the small field hand houses and the medium-sized manager houses and the huge wedding cake houses of the Hancocks themselves. Walker pointed out his grandfather's place that had to be rebuilt after the Civil War when the Union Army burned this whole county to the ground. I was unprepared for how much of a sort of insular ecosystem it is. Mm-hmm. Like where everybody lives and works here. Nobody has a commute. Yep. Everybody goes home for lunch. Yep. <laughs> yeah, this guy's named Shay. He has family. He's got three kids. Um, imagine being, well, I was about, that's stupid. I was about to say, imagine being in a kid here, but you can. Yeah. I mean, Walker grew up here. Lots of families live around the sprawling farm. Claiborne is a lot of things. It's a home to its owners and many of its workers. It's a place where high-profile breedings are arranged, where foals are born and then cared for as they grow up into famous racehorses. When their work lives are done, some animals even retire here, too. In that way, there isn't much difference between the horses and the people at Claiborne. They are born here, and they die here, and they spend all the days in between tied to one Uh, another. I sometimes sleep with my windows open, and uh, there's horses that are usually out in the pasture beside my house and you can literally hear them pick the grass. Life at Claiborne revolves around breeding season. And breeding season, like nearly everything in the racing calendar, 
is timed around the Kentucky Derby. You might not know this, but only three-year-old horses are allowed to race in the Derby. Here's how it works. Every horse born in a calendar year has a registered birthday of January the 1st. So the closer to that day you can bring a horse into the world, the older and more mature it will be once its derby day comes. Horses gestate for about 11 months, which means it all gets going around Valentine's Day. So here's our breeding shed here. All right. Morning, Kevin. All right. Do you remember the first time you ever saw this? Uh, yeah, I kind of do. I mean, because I wasn't allowed here at the breeding shed for a while. Actually, it was probably just only about 15, 20 years ago that we started allowing women to watch. Like, they used to, if you, if a woman brought a mare to the shed, um, my dad or grandfather would make them sit in the truck or whatever. Things are real slow to change around here. At Claiborne, breeding happens in the same simple black wooden barn where Mr. Woodward once stood. How did you learn all of this? I mean, this, we've been doing this for over 110 years, so, I mean... This farm has. I didn't pick Claiborne Farms at random. They've bred six of the 13 Triple Crown winners, always doing things the old-fashioned way. Beef and dairy cows can be bred with technology like artificial insemination, but not thoroughbreds. The jockey club doesn't permit it for several reasons. Watching the horses actually do the deed prevents fraud. Someone pretending to sell cheap DNA masquerading as elite. It also keeps the horses from being clones of each other. If you could simply use a test tube, every horse could be made from some old champion like Manowar. And I also think they do it a little bit to lean into the myth and nostalgia of the whole thing. What's, like that's where Kentucky Derby winner comes from. Yeah, yeah, you never know. All right, All right here's how it goes down. Groom goes up to the stallion barn and gets the lucky Romeo. He's pumped. Yeah, so they know exactly what they're doing. He usually goes out to his paddock that way. Instead, he's coming this way, so he knows what he's about to do. The horses start stomping and bellowing. One of them, I swear to God, prants sideways down the path toward his partner for the morning. I was standing with Jess and Courtney and Walker, and Walker looked more than a little bit mortified as he answered all of our questions. So who's the... This is Demarchelier. So his, this is probably his third or fourth marriage ever bred. So he's a little sloppy. Yeah. He doesn't really know what he's doing quite. I mean, he knows what he's supposed to do, yeah. but he hasn't perfected the art of it. Like yeah, 100%. In and out, like yeah. one jump, we're done. Yeah. So he might be all over the place here in a minute. The Claiborne Farms crew does what they always do. Even if we weren't here, Walker would still be standing around to greet the customers, the owners of the mares who paid for this live mating with his stallion. And the farm manager, Bradley, is right up close and personal. How you doing? Looking out for the safety of the animals and the men dangerously close to 2,400 pounds of amorous horse love. So there's... Jesus Christ. <laughs> okay. All right, Harold. Thank you. When the brief interlude was over, science re-entered the picture. And then Bradley, he'll get the dismount 
and uh, he'll go in there. There's a microscope. He'll put it on the microscope, make sure there's a seamen or swimmers. Yeah. And um, you know, I'll tell the guy here if there's a good cover or not, because if it's there's no semen in there, if there's a bunch of deads, they're gonna know that he's they gotta come back and breed her again. Yeah. So you get you don't get paid for the attempt. You get paid. We for the we day. don't get paid until this time next year when that mare's gonna have that foal. It's just a short walk from the shed back to the Claiborne office. Donut. There's hot coffee and donuts in the break room. What is all of this? Walker's office looks like some classic manor drawing room, except for the computer sitting on top of his old-fashioned desk. This was Bull's office? Yeah. I mean... Is that right? This desk was his. Just in case you didn't remember the pressure you were under. Yeah, here it is. Stack of books, 13 feet in the air behind you. When did you understand that this was going to land on you. Well, I don't recall how old I was, but I remember my dad had been going at it for, he's, I mean, he took over the farm when he was 22. And um, there's a point in time where he was really ready to retire. And he thought about, I was a young kid. And basically he's like, do you want to do this or not? And of course I did. But I think at that time when the thought came like, oh, maybe he might just sell the farm. That kind of hit me then like, oh crap. Like this is a really big deal. His ancestors preferred to keep this place private, but when Walker took over, he and his sister opened a visitor's center against his father's advice. He's a modern man who knows that the average urban American doesn't know anything about life on a farm. Frankly, I think the main reason he agreed to even let us in here was because he thought that maybe if people could just see it all, they'd understand. What is something you have to deal with that Bull or Arthur never had to deal with. I mean, this animal rights activists that are protesting and picketing outside the racetracks saying, you kill horses, shame on you. And when did this start? Like, when did you notice the bad wind blowing? I mean, it, it's kind of been going on for the last five, six, seven years, but I'd say it, it's really taken off in the past year. Really? Yeah. Um, the breakdowns at Santa Anita yeah. um, are a terrible thing, but I hope these animal rights activists can see how much they would affect not just people like me, but, you know, it's it's part of our American culture. Walker finds himself in a perilous time. The Hancocks need to keep up with the changing breeding world, but their particular business model depends on preserving a mythic connection to the past. It's a needle to thread. And so they try to find a balance evolving while also protecting as many of the old ways as possible. You know, do you feel part of your responsibility now that your father, grandfather, great-grandfather never really had to deal with is actually defending the very idea of the thing you do? Absolutely. And that's the pressure. Like, um, you know, you talked about earlier, the pressure to keep it going. It's At this point, it's the pressure to keep it alive, not, not forget and keep it going. What was the business like for each of them, and what's it like for you? I'm just trying to get a sense of how it's changed. Oh, the dynamics changed drastically. Dad, he says, like, I'm, I'm glad you're in this chair, not me. Because I mean, he's like, I couldn't handle it these days. I mean, it's just, it's so commercial. They're, the folks that you deal with are so different. than Like, there's no really loyalty anymore. Claiborne Farms got famous dealing with a tight circle of loyal, hyper-wealthy, and multi-generational clients. Walker's great-grandfather and grandfather literally did deals with handshakes. Now he is competing in a cutthroat global business, just one of hundreds of breeders chasing thousands of customers. I mean, people are trying to steal your clients. They'll try and steal your horses. You know, the stallion, trying to recruit the next stallions is just, 
it's like a college football recruiting a five-star athlete you got the top schools after them you got the top farms after these horses and it's ruthless i mean (laughs) the backdoor deals you know all that kind of stuff breeders compete to buy the most successful horse as soon as he retires and is at the absolute height of his career like american pharaoh or justify then the breeders turn around and breed that horse to as many mares as possible sometimes all over the world with the idea of making as much money as they can, often before any of those baby horses grow up and have a chance to race. It's a commercial market, and uh, people oftentimes anymore breed to sell instead of breed to race, and it's how they can make money, not necessarily for the love of the sport. What concessions do you have to make to the modern way racing is done just to sort of keep up with the Joneses? You got to breed some speed into these horses. Um, you can't just wait around and wait for them to win races when they're four and five years old. That's no one's going to breed your stallion if he if he don't win until he's four or five. So yeah, you got to breed some speed into them. No one wants to have the patience to wait to see if their horse is any good. It used to be that a horse proved its worth by winning a lot of races. You wanted to breed for speed and stamina. It doesn't work that way anymore. Today, a horse's job is to run the fewest number of races as possible while building a reputation for being really fast. If he does that well, it's off to the breeding shed to be a stud horse. And that means horses aren't racing as much as they used to. Nashua ran 30 times. Native Dancer ran 22 times. The average starts a horse makes today is six. But that bakes in a huge problem. A lot of starts over a multi-year career gives breeders more of a chance to look for flaws and genetic weaknesses. Without that, it's sort of a crapshoot. Here's an example. One of the most popular studs after Nashua's sale was Raise a Native, Native Dancer's son, whose grave we visited at the end of episode two. Raise a Native raced four times in his career, and only as a two-year-old. He won all four of those races and set or tied track speed records in three. But he was retired early because of injuries. Raisin Native was a blisteringly fast and completely unsound horse. But that didn't keep him from becoming a prolific stud. When he died in 1988, the New York Times called him the most influential sire of American thoroughbred stallions over the last 20 years. In 1988, nobody really understood exactly how influential he would be not just for his offspring, but for the entire sport. One of the most horrible things I've ever seen happen in a horse race was in the 2008 Kentucky Derby. Even all these years later, it's hard to watch the video. Down the stretch, it was between two horses, Big Brown and Eight Bells. Big Brown, the favorite, pulled away and won. And then, just past the finish line, Eight Bells tripped. Both her ankles snapped, and she slammed into the ground. More than 157,000 people were watching at Churchill Downs. 14 million more were watching on TV. And the vets put her down right there on the track. Eight Bells was the first horse to ever die in a derby in modern times. And one person saw it coming. Eight Bell's breakdown was predicted by a woman named Ellen Parker. I heard about her for the first time in a story written by one of the greatest sports writers ever, Bill Knack. 
He was a mentor of mine. I loved and respected him. His most famous story was his obituary of Secretariat, but his last famous story was about the death of Eight Bells and about Ellen's bleak prediction. Here's how he described her. She is often sounded, in this equine world driven now by speed, greed, and the soulless dictates of the marketplace, like the voice literally crying in the wilderness. What so concerned her on the eve of this derby, what she found so disturbing, even infuriating, traced to her unshakable belief that Eight Bells was carrying in her DNA the seeds of her own destruction. That story of Bills ran 12 years ago, and when it came out, it lit the breeding establishment on fire. Oh, yeah. There was so much controversy. That's Ellen Parker. She's a pedigree analyst and breeding consultant who has worked in the racing industry for decades. See, we've got horses with the same name. Her house is a mile or two from Claiborne Farms, and she's sitting with me at her kitchen table, typing carefully. She's searching her database to show me what warning signs she saw in Eight Bells' family tree. Eight Bells. Yeah, that's it. That's the right one. Back in 2008, as the derby entry started rolling in, Ellen pulled up her database and looked at Eight Bells' pedigree. Her father was a horse named Unbridled Song. Her mother was named Away. But if you go back further, you'll start to see names of horses you recognize. Native Dancer, Raisin Native, Nashua. I took one look at that pedigree and it terrified me. I just thought she was destined to get hurt. I didn't know it was going to be in the Kentucky Derby in front of everybody, okay? I just said, that's a disaster. What about Eight Bells Pedigree scared you? When Unbridled Song ran, when he was... He had all kinds of troubles with his feet, but I kept trying to warn against the three crosses of Raisin Native, and they're right there. Raisin Native, Raisin Native, Northern Dancer. When Ellen looked at the horses running the derby that day, Eight Bells was the one that worried her the most. According to Ellen, the filly was dangerously inbred to three horses in particular who appear somewhere in nearly every thoroughbred pedigree, Raisin Native, Northern Dancer, and Mr. Prospector. We have that bloodline prevalent throughout the breed. And when you have that as a more and more as it builds up, everybody looks at these little five-generation pedigrees and says, oh, well, they're, they're not inbred. Uh, but in the back of the pedigree, you're building up lines and crosses generation after generation after generation. The more inbreeding Ellen finds in a family tree, the more she fears for the horse. It's like stacking blocks. One or two is fine, even good. More and more, though, and the whole tower becomes precarious. There's nothing wrong with inbreeding as long as you recognize the fact that you're going to get the good and the bad. Look, Ellen knows that thoroughbred horses have always been inbred. But her theory is that when breeding turned into a business, the most important and dangerous unintended consequence was a change in the thoroughbred gene pool. Too much emphasis on speed, too little scrutiny of the weaknesses being passed down. Remember, 
This all started with syndication. Investors in a syndicate get paid based on how much money their stallion makes. A stallion's breeding schedule is traditionally called a book. It's kind of like a dance card. If he makes a hundred grand for every baby, then more babies equals more money for the investors. Once we started all this syndication stuff, um, you, you, the books got bigger. What does that mean? That means that we used to breed horses to 30 mares a year. Now we breed them to 130 in two hemispheres. She's talking about the same trend that Walker is fighting against, breeding high-profile stallions as many times as you can, moving them between the northern and southern hemispheres, because, with apologies to Jimmy Buffett and Alan Jackson, it's always breeding season somewhere. Double the winter, double the money. And what does that do to the gene pool? Well, if you have the same bloodline, it narrows the bloodline all the way down to the nub. It has already done so. What role does their blood play for all of those horses at Santa Anita? Well, needless to say, you have to take everything into account because you're never going to know exactly what, at that split second, was the final straw. Okay. However, you if you don't have a good foundation, you don't have a good house. And the foundation is the blood. According to Ellen, this is the fundamental reason horses are dying. Not the track, not the drugs, the bloodline. If thoroughbred racing and breeding is a house, what is the state of the house? <laughs> it's condemned. <laughs> I remember once describing a, uh, an incredible uh, case of inbreeding by a horse early in the 20th century, and I thought, well, how can I how can I put this? And I said, you know, my mother's daddy is both my daddy's granddaddies. So, <laughs> and that was a successful horse. It was a decent stallion. This is Ed Bowen again, perhaps the country's most respected racing historian. He thinks Ellen has fallen prey to the oldest trap in any sport, thinking the old days were good or somehow better. Ellen is saying the problem in the bloodline is a function of modern commercial breeding. But Ed says that breeding has always worked that way. Thoroughbred horses have always been bred for speed and money, even in the old pre-syndicate days, and a small number of them have always broken down. This is the reality of the sport. Ed's not alone. That's important to say. A lot of smart racing people don't agree with Ellen. Even after her prediction for eight bells was borne out, even after everyone suddenly started paying so much attention to the safety of horses, Ellen remains a lone wolf. Did you think that Bill's eight bells article was going to change things? No. Why not? Because nothing ever changes in this business fast. Okay, it takes forever. This is the slowest moving industry you ever want to see. So what do you do? <laughs> what you do, there's only one thing you can do. And that's open up the stud book to another breed. That might not seem like a big deal if you're new to this world, but it's just about as heretical a thing as anyone involved in horse racing could say that the only way to breed the weakness out of the gene pool is to open it up to non-thoroughbred horses. 
that is a nuclear option. Racing, and all the money to be made in it, is built on pedigrees, remember? An unbreakable line. Ellen says the only way to save horse racing is to break that line. She sees the situation as stark and binary. You can keep thoroughbreds, or you can keep horse racing, but you can't keep both. So, if I went down the road and got Walker and Seth Hancock and said, Ellen Parker says we need to open the stud book, what would they say? <laughs> they, 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 Jockey Club will never do it. I just, I just can't imagine. Uh, you might get somebody drunk one Saturday night <laughs> and get them to admit it's what needs to be done. But I don't think you'd ever get anybody to allow it. What's it like to know exactly what racing should do and have known it for a very long time and not be able to convince anyone to listen to you? You finally get to the point where it's just depressing. I think both Ellen and Walker want what's best for the future of racing. But Walker wants to save the breeding model that's nurtured his family for generations and along the way protect a sport and a way of life. Ellen wants to tear all of that down and build something new, maybe better, in its place. If I'm being honest, I'm a traditionalist at heart, so I naturally tend to agree with Walker, and I love the way it felt to be at his family farm. But I also see the logic in Ellen's belief that everything that's happened in the breeding world since Nashua was sold has hollowed out the bloodline. And to continue doing things just because it's how they've always been done can only lead to more destruction. Is there a horse running in prep races right now for the upcoming Derby whose pedigree really worries you like Eight Bell's pedigree worried you? You know, they're all so similar. That's the thing. Horses qualify for the Kentucky Derby by accumulating points. It's constantly changing, but as we were finishing up our reporting at the end of May, the top five point earners were Nadal, Tis the Law, Wells Bayou, Charlatan, and King Guillermo. Remember those three horses Ellen worried about in Eight Bells Pedigree? Ray's a native, Northern Dancer, Mr. Prospector? Well, Nadal, trained by Bob Baffert, is heavily inbred to all three. Tis the Law is inbred four times to Mr. Prospector. Wells Bayou is inbred four times to Northern Dancer and has that classic raisin native native dancer line at the top of his pedigree. Baffert Charlatan is inbred to all three. King Guillermo is inbred to Northern Dancer five times and raisin native twice. I could keep doing this all day. Ete Indian is inbred twice to Northern Dancer. Mr. Monomoy has got three Raisin Natives and eight Northern Dancers. Basin is inbred to Mr. Prospector, Raisin Native, Northern Dancer, Northern I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. 
This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as uh, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. There are two things I learned for certain making this podcast. Horses are weaker now than they were in 1955. So is the sport. The weakness goes much deeper than twice as many horses dying at Santa Anita in 2019. All these debates about drugs, rain, and cruelty actually seem to distract people from asking the one question that must be reckoned with if racing is to have any sort of future at all. What is the sport actually about? Is it about the races or the bloodlines? The real fight for the future of the sport isn't between fans and protesters or between track owners and animal rights activists. It's between the competing impulses of the people who run the game. Tradition versus modernization. Speed versus stamina. Painful rebirth versus glorious self-destruction. Maybe racing will be fine. Look, it survived in America through depressions and world wars and the invention of the internet. Despite the number of deaths at Santa Anita and the fear and anger it created on all sides, the sport has never been safer for horses. And yet, Ellen's warning about a hidden and ticking time bomb is sobering. That's what her theory really is to me. A warning. I wish I could come back to Paris, Kentucky in a hundred years and see how things play out. I can't do that, but I do have a rough idea of what it was like about a hundred years ago. Before Courtney, Jess, and I drove out of town, I wanted to take them to a place I love. It's on private property, so I made some calls and got us permission. A farm manager met us to open the locked gate. Hey, they don't, they don't know what I'm going to go show them. Oh. <laughs> uh, so okay, I won't I'm, say anything. Um, so I, it's up around... Do you know yes, where? I've been there before. Okay, not a problem. Just keep going straight. Yep. And it'll be off of the yep. right. Um, the gates will open automatically. On the way back? On the way back out. All right, you are a uh, gentlewoman and a scholar, and I appreciate <laughs> you. No problem. Have a great day. Thanks, ma'am. Driving through the farm, I told Courtney and Jess about the man who once owned it, James Ben Ali Hagen. He made his fortune in the California gold rush, and then with his spoils, he bought the largest breeding operation in the country. This all used to be one huge farm, but he owned all of this shit. His prized possession was a 12,000 square foot mansion on his Kentucky farm, with Italian marble lions guarding the door and big columns visible for miles around. He named it Green Hills. All right, do you see this up on the right? Yeah. We rounded a corner and there they were, alone in a field, four stone columns, rising 25 feet into the air. Uh, that's all that's left of it. Oh, the columns wow. are left. Oh my God. And I just think it's one of the craziest things I've ever seen. This was just like the front of the house? Yes. And now this is it. Yes, it's one of my favorite things. If you leaned up against one of these columns around the turn of the century and looked out at the world around you, you'd have seen a training center a stallion complex, and horses, hundreds of horses, running through almost 9,000 acres of perfect green pasture. We're so interested in ancient ruins 
and America is just barely old enough to have the very beginnings of the sort of things that tourists go looking for and they really don't exist much but like sitting out here on a hill in Kentucky are ruins of an entire way of life let's walk up here it's cool anyway this is crazy it's just full, like this is like something from Rome or like the Parthenon We're such a young nation, we don't think about loss that much. Our narrative is built around our ascendancy. We're almost culturally trained to ignore signs of our own decline. I can just imagine people coming out to this house for a Kentucky Derby party a hundred years ago. They must have thought their way of life would never end. Horse racing feels a lot like that, going along as if it's still in some gilded age. But everywhere you look, if you look, you're confronted with cracks. It's just a world that is shrinking in on itself. And like, you never can really see it, except there are four columns in the middle of a horse field. What are dead horses, if not a warning that the house is crumbling? finished reporting in March of 2020, we couldn't have imagined how a global pandemic would stop everything in its tracks, including horse racing. The Santa Anita protests have basically disappeared. Well, sort of. In April, the Bafferts and Oscar de la Torre, the advocate for Santa Anita's backstretch workers, were among dozens of racing people who rallied outside an L.A. County Board of Supervisors meeting. They were calling for racing to resume at Santa Anita during the coronavirus shutdown. Bob sign said we love our horses from foal to retirement. The board listened. In May, Santa Anita reopened for racing, though no fans were allowed in the grandstand. By mid-July, the Los Angeles County Department of Public Health issued a report confirming that 38 people at the track had tested positive for COVID-19. Following the Arkansas Derby, Bob Baffert was suspended in the state for 15 days after two of his horses tested positive for lidocaine. Baffert, who wasn't on site with the horses, says the drug's presence was an accident. Apparently, an assistant trainer was wearing a lidocaine patch while caring for the horse. Joe Drape, of course, broke the story. The Kentucky Derby was postponed until a September weekend normally reserved for college football. The Preakness was moved to October. The Belmont Stakes took place in June. The winner, by the way, was Tis the Law, one of the many horses inbred to Mr. Prospector. In May, I got an email from Ellen Parker, and she was pointing out a new breeding regulation passed by the Jockey Club. Citing a desire to stop the ongoing thinning of gene pool diversity, they announced a cap on the number of mares who can be bred to a single stallion, although the North American-based organization can't do anything about shipping horses all over the Southern Hemisphere. But it's a start. People are finally looking in the right place, in the blood of the horses themselves.
If you enjoyed Bloodlines, please remember to subscribe to ESPN Investigates for even more great storytelling. Next up, The Running Man. This is the story of a disgraced Olympian, a man accused of sexually abusing dozens of boys and young men for over 40 years. I remember thinking, if I scream, nobody can hear me. And the perfect storm that brought his accusers together. I'm not the only one. You're not the only one. It's no longer on my own. I'm not alone. And brought him out of the shadows. How do you do it? How do you get these boys to believe in you so much? I'm your host, Mike Kessler. And from ESPN, this is The Running Man. Bloodlines is hosted and reported by me, Wright Thompson. It was made in collaboration with Pineapple Street Studios. It was produced by Jess Hackle and Courtney Harrell. Our senior producers at ESPN are Eric Neal and Mike Philbrick. Our editors are Joel Lovell and Maddie Sprung-Kaiser, with help from Jonathan Minivar. Mixing by Hannes Brown. Our researcher is Diane Hodson. Our fact checker is Dale Brauner. The executive producers at Pineapple Street are Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky. The executive producers at ESPN are Connor Schell, Rob King, Allison Overholt, and Patricia Mays. Production management and licensing by Catherine Sankey. Our ESPN fact checker is George Milkoff. Additional production support from Eric Paul and Linda Powder. The ESPN audio team includes Tom Ricks, Vice President, Audio Digital Strategy and Marketing, Megan Judge, Director of Audio Distribution and Marketing, Pete Giannassini, who is Senior Director of Audio Production, and Ryan Graner, Director of Digital Audio Operations. Special thanks to Barry Finkel, Eric Mennel, Henry Malofsky, Jeffrey Reed, and Maria Robbins-Somerville. Can't let you go without thanking Ricky Parker in Lexington, Tennessee for the whole hog barbecue. I want to thank the Hancock family who really opened up their whole lives to us. To Sam Four, our Lexington road mom. By the way, if you're listening to this in Lexington, Kentucky, stop what you're doing and go to Takiera Ramirez and get a burrito. Like, turn this podcast off and go there right now. In Oxford, Mississippi, we want to thank the City Grocery and Handy Andy for the food and sustenance. And, of course, deep appreciation to Emma, Sam, Sonia, and Wallace. Thank you all so much for listening.